The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Let's pray. Father, as it rains outside and in and inside, here we think about and sing about and will continue to talk about love, your love for us, love within the church. I want to pray along with Isaiah that the righteousness and the salvation that you have created here on this earth that you have created, among this people that you have created, I pray, Lord, that that righteousness and salvation would bear fruit here. That it would take root and it would sprout and grow up and produce fruit. Specifically, this fruit of love. Would you accomplish that in our midst? Well, we all come from different backgrounds. Even this very morning, many different things have happened to us. And I pray that you would cause each of us to be able to sit here before you and meet with you. I ask you to move away, to clear away all the barriers that, that would stand between us and you and enable us each to experience, to, to sense within us a new taste, a new touch of your love for us and that you would cause that to grow up and produce a love that flows out of us then back to you and onto others. Towards that end, Lord, would you remove sin from us? Would you lead us in repentance if there's something we need to clear away? If there are distractions of temperature or sound, clear those away. Spirit of God, would you move through the room now and become large in our minds and hearts? Dominate our perspective and meet with us. Speak and teach, I pray. Use your scriptures here. Make them to be, though, more than just words on a page. Make them to be what they are, word of life to us from you. So would you come now, feed us from your word, change us and make us a people pleasing to you, more pleasing to you than we are already. We, we are yours, saved by grace, your delight. But order our lives and our hearts so that we are walking in this world, bearing fruit that, that commends you to the world and that puts a smile on your face. I do that now, Lord, I pray. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We can get the, the little tweak on the sound, perhaps. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
And my hope is that as we look at this passage this morning, and really as we continue on through the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, that God will continue to do a work that I, I pray He is doing, and, and it has begun even last week, a work of producing in us the fruit of love. Now, truth be told, the fruit of a whole package. If God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you, if you're a Christian, He lives inside of you, then He is producing all along all of the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All of those things are growing all at the same time. He doesn't just produce one and not the other. That being said, the greatest of these is love. The more excellent way is the way of love. A couple of phrases in 1 Corinthians that we'll come to. My hope is that whether you were here last week uh, in this worship service or if you were at the men's retreat last week, that, that something started in you a little bit, that you began to see and, and to sense a little bit of why it is the more excellent way, of, of why it is so important that we be a people who love. find it a particular need in my own life to think about, to consider love. As I look through our church, I, I find it a need here in our body. Not in every single person, every single situation, but, but consistently, a need that we have. So may God work this morning through this passage and then on in the following weeks to grow us to be a people who love like He does. Let me read this passage all of chapter 8, and then I'll pass back through it to work through the text before making a couple of observations. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
The passage begins with the familiar now concerning, indicating that we have here another instance in which Paul is turning to address an issue that the Corinthians raised in writing to him. He's going to address their, their question about food offered to idols. That's the basic issue. But if you, if you look at your Bible and you, and you step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture, if you glance ahead, you'll notice probably some various headings in chapter 9 and chapter 10, things about surrendering your rights or things about idolatry, etc. But all of those points are really sub-points beneath this one basic issue of food offered to idols. He's going to come back to this. If you look at 10 verse 19, you'll notice that he's, he's talking then about the idol issue again. In, in 10.25, he's, he's touching on it again. He's taking three chapters to answer this basic question. Not that it's that complicated. When he finally gets to answering the question, it's a sentence. But it's, it's a great opportunity to address what he sees to be the real issue in the church. An issue of the heart. So he's going to work subpoints here and there. He's going to he's going to go this way and talk about this issue, then come back over here. He's going to he's going to kind of split it apart and talk about the difference between food in the temples and food at home. And all throughout, he's really after something going on in here. The main issue, fundamental to the whole question, is the issue he brings up in verse one. Now. Concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. There's his quote. You might have your Bible, in your Bible might be set in quotations indicating that he's, he's quoting something that they've said to him. All of us possess knowledge. Yes, sure, okay, uh-huh. We all have a knowledge and understanding. Sure, I agree with that. However, this knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. There's the issue. This knowledge that you have puffs up, literally, inflates to arrogance. The word he's used repeatedly in this letter up to this point. You have a knowledge, uh-huh, I agree. But like a balloon, it's inflating you so that you're quite large but hollow. Different than what love does. Love builds up something substantive. There's an important contrast, which is going to run through this morning. Verse 2 expands on what he means. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So there's a way that we ought to know. The text gives us actually a very strong, it is necessary to know, must know. There's a way that we must know, different than how the Corinthian church is knowing different than than what they are how they are carrying the information that they have there's a way that we must know that's appropriate for someone who says i love god and i am known by god i'm in relationship to him there's an appropriate knowledge and an inappropriate type of knowledge but just to be clear on the facts of the knowledge verses four to six you're you're right about the facts he does paul does not dispute what they know now Later, in chapter 10, he will partially dispute what they know. He's, he's going to agree with them that the idols are actually no gods. Well, later he's going to say, you know, really, in fact, the, the idols are demons. But su- substantively, you're right. They are not gods. In all these temples, in all these shrines, there's only one God. You're right. We all agree. 
He's quoting them again, and then he's going to refer to, to a couple lines from an old creed. There is only one God, our Father, the maker of all things for whom we exist, and one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We all agree on that. And get that, that that's significant. For people growing up in Corinth, in a land awash with idolatry, temples and shrines on every corner, for them by the grace of God to actually get, this whole thing is a charade. We go over here and we offer this sacrifice for this thing in life and this one for this thing in life and we work. It's all false. There's only one God. God has broken into their lives and, and graciously opened their eyes to some marvelous truth and Paul says that is not what it ought to be. Some of us have some amazing grasp of some deep theology and perhaps he would say to you it is not a knowledge like it ought to be. Might need to listen here. But they do have some grasp of some marvelous things. All of us know these things. Well, verse 7, actually, not quite all. Not everybody. And Paul introduces the weak brothers. Now, the weak brothers here, it's not physically weak. He's talking about, he uses the phrase weak in conscience a couple times. Verse 7 brings that up. Someone who's a Christian, he's a brother, he or she has become a believer, but different than the, what we might call the strong brothers who, who have a pretty firm grasp on the, the one God idea, the, these other weaker brothers are struggling with something. They know there's only one God. They've trusted Him. They believe. But if they see or if they are drawn back into the temple, something comes over them and they are, they are troubled. This might be a little hard for us to get here in our culture, but think of it like this. If you grew up, as some in the world do, believing from birth that there are spirits in the trees, as people teach in the world today, there are spirits in the trees, and one best not go into the forest without offering the proper sacrifice or you don't know what will happen. Now to come to faith in Christ and know it's not true is one thing, but to walk into the forest is another. And that's a struggle for some. And to be forced or dragged into that is going to create some angst inside. Another example. What if you live in the United States? You're involved in Wiccan. And you're converted to Christ. You've been a priest or a priestess. Converted to Christ. Somebody invites you to a Halloween gathering. You sit around and most roast marshmallows. Go trick-or-treating. Dress up as a witch. That's different, especially when you consider it's not exactly that the idols are no things, they aren't gods, the idols are demons. Maybe the person who walks into the forest is actually bumping into something that the stronger brother or sister is insensitive to, doesn't even notice. Maybe the Wiccan priest has actually come in contact with demonic powers that all of us sitting around the fire don't know anything of. Trying to help you understand that there's, there's a real issue here that goes beyond just, why don't you guys get over it? The weaker brother, the weaker sister is struggling with something. 
and is alarmed by something, as, as they're enticed or dragged into something. What Paul's trying to do here is point out the thoughtlessness, the lovelessness of a so-called mature believer going on into the temple to the parties and feasts that would happen there and afflicting this weaker brother with his carelessness. Causing this weaker brother or sister to have a crisis of faith in some way, to struggle in his, his mind in some way. And Paul says, that ought not to be. And I myself will have no part of that. I care too much about these ones for whom Christ died. Do you? Or, as it would seem to be the case, Corinthians, are you mostly determined to use all of the liberty that you know that you have so as to enjoy your life to the fullest, regardless of what it means for them? That's the issue in chapter 8. Paul's not really concerned to answer the question of can we or can we not eat the food offered to idols? He'll come to that later. But he doesn't come to that in chapter 8. He puts his finger on the main issue. An issue concerned with knowledge and love in the body. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me summarize it in in this sentence. God gives knowledge to be used with love for the building up of the church. And I don't just mean the church as an organism, I mean the church as individual people. God gives knowledge to be used with love for the building up of His people. I'll make two observations. Here's the first one. Christ-like love for the brethren, brothers and sisters, Christ-like love for the brethren is the God-glorifying, soul-satisfying calling of a Christian. Let me say that again and think about it as I'm saying it. Christ-like love for the brethren is the God-glorifying, it's it's what glorifies God, and it is the soul-satisfying, it's actually what satisfies your soul. Christ-like love for the brethren is what God calls Christians to. This becomes the immediate issue in verse 1. He starts by quoting them, but moves to the heart Are we going to talk about, are we going to live in, Corinthians, are we going to live in proud, self-serving knowledge, or are we going to live in Christ-like, loving, other-serving knowledge? Which is it going to be? One of those two. He brings it up with them as Christians in verse 3, those who claim to love God and are known by Him. What does God want of us? And he's going to then go about this in a roundabout way. And I say roundabout because it doesn't seem like He actually goes there immediately. He goes off to this knowledge piece in 4 to 6. It's easy to read 4 to 6 as if it's just kind of him running through the paces. We know we agree on this, we agree on this, we agree on this. But he does so for an important reason. What's he attacking? Pride, arrogance. What does he reiterate in 4 to 6? 
There is one God who made you, for whom you exist. Middle of verse 6. There is one Lord who sustains everything that there is, including you. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know. Hold, hold on. There is a God, only one, who made you, who by His power enables you to draw your very next breath, and the next one, and the next one. Everything you think and everything you do and everything you will do tomorrow is only by the enabling grace of this God for whom you exist. And if you will pause there and let that sink in and not run off past uh, stuff we know, pause there, let that sink in. There is a nail in the coffin of pride in that fact. I am a creature dependent in every conceivable way on a God for whom I exist. And I'm going to turn and use life as I wish for my own ends? Ah, no. Before this God, brothers and sisters, we, oh, we have a, we have a huge problem in that we, every single one of us, and I know you do this because I do this too, every single one of us, we walk through life with this massive disconnect between all the stuff that I'm talking about right now and what you really live. I do it too. I know you do it. We exist before God every moment of every day. I find it so personally difficult to remember that every moment of every day. I can remember it right now as I'm talking about it. But I guarantee you, if you bring it up six hours from now, I will have forgotten. We exist before God. Standing before Him. And what should come out of us in every single moment is, What, Lord? What from me? At your service. Your wish is my command. Those sorts of things. For whom we exist. Then Lord, my God, what do you want from me? That should be our posture every single moment of every single day. And if we ask that question in this passage, what will come back to us is, what I want from you is Christ-like love for the brethren. Not in an explicit sentence, but it's clearly here. Obviously, God is concerned that the weaker brother not be hurt, right? If you walk through here, you see Paul speaking the Word of God, greatly concerned that the weaker brother is defiled, caused to stumble, destroyed, wounded. Living in such a way to cause those things, verse 12, is sinning against your brothers, end of it, sinning against Christ. That's what God doesn't want. 
My Lord, my God, what do you have for me? For what do you place me here? Not for that, but for the other. We exist here, we live here with a purpose. Not to sin against brother and against Christ, but to live loving and serving those for whom Christ died in love. Huh, look at that, he snuck the gospel in again. It's like Paul can't get that off his mind. Like he knows nothing else but Christ and him crucified. Keeps coming back to that in every situation. Yeah, I think he said that at the beginning of the book. It is in every... Here we are thinking that we're just only thinking about how to act towards our brother. And he has to sneak in your brother for whom Christ died. This weaker brother that you, Corinthian, are, are despising, this one, Christ, loved and died for. What is God's purpose in this brother's life? To save him. To build him up. While he was yet weak and ignorant, didn't know a single thing. An enemy of God. God the Father sent God the Son to earth to take on a body, to go to the cross, to die for this foolish, ignorant enemy. Am I talking about the weaker brother or me? Yes. We are not different. I think we are. God does not. That one there, I love. I have sent my Son, your Lord. Sent Him to die in love to redeem because of the great love with which I loved Him. He says in Ephesians 2. So, what's what's your purpose for me, Lord? Like me. To love and die for the sake of godly good in this one's life. You don't redeem him. I did that. But you can build him. That's what I intend for you. To love him like Christ did. To, to give your life for him like Christ does. That is... The God-glorifying, soul-satisfying calling on you, Christian, in this passage. It, it's God-glorifying, obviously, because the opposite of it is sin. And so, so to obey God honors Him. But more profoundly than that, to live like this, to live following Christ, seeing the cross, what He has done for me, and then to love like that, sacrificing my life, is to walk in the footsteps of John 13. To follow after the new commandment. Do you know that? John 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Though they have no idea what He's doing. They lack knowledge. He does. They have no ability to deliver themselves from what He's about to deliver them from. Yet He does it. He washes their feet, symbolizing how He's going to wash them with His blood. And He says, a new commandment I give you, Love like this. That's how they will know you are my disciples. There's what's glorifying to God. Because that kind of love does not come from us. It comes from Christ at work in us. 
So it's glorifying to God as, as he changes us that we want to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And it is the satisfaction of your soul. Think about this. And, and I think we probably have all connected with this a little bit. If you've been in a family or been in a circle of friends where there's been one person that you all have decided to bless. Maybe an, an easy example is, is a birthday or maybe a Mother's Day or a Father's Day or an anniversary where everybody gets together and says, we're going to join onto the same team and bless this other person. And it's, it's fun, it's exciting, it's delightful. If there's a weaker brother here and you are going to, to say, I, I'm going to live for the growth, the love, the, the development of that brother, whose team are you joining? Christ's. Into whose fellowship are you entering? Christ's. That's what he's concerned about. That's how he feels about that person. You are linking arms with him. What you will find as you step away from me living for my own agenda into me living with him on his mission you'll find there's, there's a communion that comes between you and Jesus that satisfies your soul. It's a sweet thing. It's far more satisfying than twisting everything here to please me immediately. This is hard because that's what's going on in Corinth. To utilize the freedom that I have means that, in Corinth, I now I can walk around with this status of being one of the knowledgeable ones, which is highly valued in Corinth, and I can go to all the parties. The, the temples were, somebody described them like this, they were the restaurants of that day. You didn't have restaurants. So if you're going to have a, a reception, you're going to celebrate a family event, a, a great national time of of celebration, it happens where? At the temple, where the God hosts you and, and gives out to you from his bounty all the, the meat you can enjoy. Well, I want a part of that. I don't care what happens to you. I want a part of that. There's, there's a certain bit of pleasure in that. But may God change your mind and your heart to actually believe well, there is a certain bit of pleasure in that. There is far more pleasure in embracing the way of the cross with the one who's walking that path, Jesus. To lay down my life, to lay down my life means that I find a different one. A life with Him that you cannot find while grasping your own. May God convince you of that. The satisfaction of your soul, not just the honor of God, the satisfaction of your soul is found when you and I love like Christ, love the people He's placed here. This is an issue for us. Now, I, I don't want to say every single one of us in every single way in fact, there's a great example of what I'm talking about just this very last week as several women from this church gave of their time to host a funeral luncheon for someone they don't know and doesn't even go to our church. A Christian woman in need. 
And several women, very quickly, in, in less than 24 hours notice, gave it themselves to do this. Bless you. So not every single one of us in every single way all the time, but, but what I'm not talking about here is the I have an affection for my friends that is common to everybody on the planet. Everybody likes their friends. That's why they're friends. I'm talking about something much more difficult than that. Much less intuitive. Much more Spirit of God created and driven. A love that binds people who otherwise strong and weak, different in knowledge, different in habits and practices, nonetheless link up to bless. Sacrificing to bless. That is a difficulty in our church. Now there are some very practical reasons that that is, which would be very difficult to overcome. Geography is an issue. We live far from each other. But that's not only the issue. Let's not, let's not cop out and say we'd be better if we lived next door. Really? Maybe. I ask you to consider. Do you sense God's call on you that there's a way that you could Lay down your life to reach out to love, to see God's good in a brother's, a sister's life, but you're not. Is he, is he kind of poking you? Ask. Ask. The simple truth is that you are your brother's keeper. You are called to watch out for each other. It is God's expectation. It is for whom we exist. It is what He wants from us. But beyond just kind of the, the heavy what, what's required, don't you want to be a part of a church like that? Don't you want to be a part of a family like that? I sure hope so. But it does not happen apart from repentance and faith. God, change me. And God, would you move in me so that I help me to believe that my heart can actually be satisfied with you as I give up this other stuff that I'm living for to serve, to live for, to love this other person who's difficult. Ask Him to do that work in you. Christ-like love for the brethren is what He calls us to. And the second observation then picks up on that and introduces knowledge. Here it is. God gives knowledge to be the servant of love. God gives knowledge to be the servant of love. All sorts of knowledge in, in every field, in fact. But here we're t speaking about spiritual knowledge. He gets to be a servant of love, not to feed pride, which is so often where we live. First one, the important contrast. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What's the goal? Building up, obviously. And how does that happen? Love. So therefore, God wants us to get rid of knowledge because all knowledge does is inflate arrogance, right? So we should just love, forget knowledge. 
No. Verse 2. It is necessary that we love and that we know as we ought. How are we to know as we ought? Well, the two together. Knowledge and love. Loving knowledge. Knowledge that is used to further the growth of this other, not my own. How does love build up? Think this through. Because... If, if I could kind of reach back a little bit to last week, knowing that a bunch of you weren't here last week. Reach back a little bit to last week and say, what did he commend the Ephesian church for? Well, he commended them for their, their knowledge of truth and doctrine, and he criticized them for their lack of love. Well, why do you need the truth? Why do you need the truth and doctrine and knowledge? Well, think about this. This weaker brother that is, various words here, defiled, uh, destroyed, cause to stumble, wounded. It's possible that I could live in a way that would cause all those things to happen, or conversely, that I could live in a way that would cause this person to be strengthened, to grow in holiness, not defiled. To not be wounded and tempted into the worship of the world, but to be more enamored with God. I, I could do that in some way. How do I do that? I need the truth for that. I cannot simply hug a person to maturity. Think about that. Love is an affection that sometimes gets displayed in touch or in a soft voice or in a smile or in a, in a tear with someone. But that in itself does not build a person up in the way that's intended here. It might buoy their spirits, but it doesn't tell them why their spirits should be buoyed. You can cheer up someone on the Titanic, but the fact is the Titanic is sinking. There is a much firmer foundation to be encouraged by and built up with. We are not on a sinking rock. We have a strong and secure one. And the knowledge that loves is a knowledge that says... Here, consider this, look at this, run this through your mind, bask in this, rejoice in this, hope in this. All presented truth in love. Jesus, who loved and died for the flock, before He left, prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. He wants His people to be built up, sanctified. How does that happen? Truth. Truth. We must have knowledge to utilize it as a tool in the service of a love that builds. We need both of those things. Truth and love. So, I say this for, for two different groups of people. The group that's really worried that if I talk about love, 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 what I'm going to say is, oh, you should give up doctrine. No. Or the, truth, or, or the people that says, really, doctrine kind of divides. 
Love binds us together and, and doctrine just divides. Let, let's, let's not split hairs and all the details, which is cover for, let's not talk about the details at all. We need doctrine, truth, knowledge, fact, because it is the tool that love uses to build up this weaker brother and to not leave him or her perpetually weak. So we proceed in two ways. First, taking a cue from verse 13. Paul recognizes the situation that he's in and says, I will, as long as it takes, I will curtail my behavior. Though I'm free to behave in this way, I will curtail it so as to not afflict the other. Notice he does not change his belief or his doctrine. He changes his behavior. His free expression of what he knows to be true. So it could be that as we deal with one another, we have a need to refrain from things that we know we can do. I'm not saying going to a Halloween party is wrong. You just might be wise to think about that. We refrain from behavior. We limit practice so as to create an environment in which then the knowledge, the truth can be taught, talked about, expressed, worked on, understood. Because Paul also does that right in this passage. He's writing this letter to the whole church. The weak and the strong are both going to read this. And here you have the apostle affirming to the weak you know, food does not actually commend us. It doesn't really matter. The weak brother is going to read that from the apostle. You know, there actually is only one God and all the idols are nothing. It really is true. I'm not going to force your conscience on that issue. I'm not going to drag you into the temple and make you face it, but I am going to reiterate it. It's true. Please believe it, weaker brother. Grow. So we curtail our practice so as to create an environment in which we then can proclaim the truth. Truth, a servant to love that builds up. That's what we need to take out of chapter 8. So I plead with you to be very diligent in asking yourself a question. As you interact with brother and sister here, to ask yourself a question. Am I in this for me? Whatever this is. Am I in this conversation? Am I in this relationship? Am I in this behavior? This lifestyle for me? Am I using what I know, what I'm entitled to, what I have, what I've been given, what I can get for me? Or everything that's been dumped on me by grace? Am I taking that and saying, Lord, what would you have of me? To love others? I take that then. In honor to you, love them, believing that's where my joy will be found. Be diligent in asking yourself that question. Am I doing this for me? Or for Christ and His people? Is a driving force in your thoughts and actions and speech the advancement of yourself 
for the advancement of others? Is it pride or is it love? And ask yourself carefully. Be diligent in asking and ask yourself carefully because pride is so subtle, especially among longtime Christians. It is so easy to walk through life fundamentally with me at the center, not thumping my chest proud, arrogant like that, but with me at the center and me ordering everything out there to please me. Very careful in asking yourself, is pride functional driving force in my life? Or am I living laying down my life for you to build you up in love? Maybe you need to repent. Ask God to help you see others as he sees them. Maybe there are specific areas where you know, I I should reach out to so-and-so. I could bless so-and-so, but I haven't. Resolve to do that. We're going to have some time here in a minute for you to just think and to process and to say, God, what would you have for me? What would it look like for righteousness and salvation to bear fruit in me right now, the fruit of love in me right now? Let me pray. Father, I ask you to speak to us, your people, and to work out of us work out of us what is what is so deeply rooted and so sneaky the self-orientation of our hearts is profound would you work it out of us would you expose it first and show us a more excellent way to my brothers and sisters who are here right now Would you graciously address the specifics of their own lives? Lead them to reflect and to ask, where do I love and where don't I love? Bring conviction and bring change and bring release and bring joy. Unite to them. And take them with you on your mission to love your people and to grow them to maturity. I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.